May the Lord's blessing be upon us, brethren, as we continue to look for unity. It's a worthy pursuit. We are in our 13th study, and I am not tired of it personally. This afternoon, the intention is to give the third and final treatment of the subtopic that is given in a question out of balance or out of bounds. We begin our study this afternoon with an ancient saying that captures the essence of the idea we're working with. You may have heard of it before. It goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. That saying is indeed ancient, often attributed to Augustine, although it is unlikely that it came from Augustine himself, as it is not found in any of his existing writings. Some have suggested that maybe Luther's companion, Philip Melanchthon, was the originator of it. Others have suggested a certain medieval theologian, either known as Peter Maeterlin, or Rupert Maldinius. And I've even seen where some suggest that Rupert Maldinius is an alias for Richard Baxter, the Puritan. I have a feeling the saying goes back prior to the Puritan era, but I don't know for sure. In any event, whether it comes from the era of the church fathers, as it were, or through the Puritan era, or even from the Middle Ages, I think that It is a Christian concept. It captures in a nice set of words the sentiment that we're thinking through when we're reflecting on how we should view various members of various churches, recognizing that we don't presently enjoy complete unity in all of our positions. If we're wondering whether someone is out of balance or out of bounds, perhaps making use of this motto would be useful. Now, there are different ways in which the motto has been recast. I won't run through the list of the variations, but one that I thought would be a bit helpful is in the second portion of the motto, the first being in essentials, unity. One could vary the second statement from in non-essentials, liberty, to in opinions, tolerance. I think that gets at the idea that some of the things that fit into the category of non-essential are questions of doctrinal understanding that are not quite as obvious from the biblical text as some of the essential items are, and perhaps that is the way God has designed it. The essential matters of the Christian faith are more easily derived from the biblical text than some of the secondary matters. And therefore, maybe the non-essentials that we're willing to grant liberty to others when we interact with them and seek fellowship with them to what extent we can, maybe it's useful for us, at least at points, to realize this might be our opinion and not necessarily a reflection of the perfect mind of the Lord on this matter, and so it argues for tolerance. Someone has written about 
these words the following. The genius of this principle is that it allows us to disagree with other believers, even vehemently, yet in an edifying fashion, with a degree of theological modesty and a perspective that seeks a deeper consensus within the bounds of true faith. Now, when we're looking for unity, and I believe we should be looking for unity, we should be looking for unity, most importantly, among ourselves. We should be looking for unity to the extent that we can within our families. May it be the case that your family is blessed with believers beyond yourself, and therefore you have the blessing of looking to seek a better unity within your own family. But as these studies are emphasizing, we should also be mindful to be looking for unity, in some sense, wherever we can discover it, at whatever level is legitimate. And as it pertains to the unfortunate nature of the highly divisive situation of Christendom in our time, we should be looking for unity in some respects, even within the Christian family at large. And of course, these studies are in part seeking to aid us in how to go about that with wisdom and with scriptural precedent behind us. And once again, I suppose it's useful to state that these studies indeed set forth a building narrative, and therefore one study does not stand all on its own. I think, for example, about last Sunday's study, and recognize that there was indeed, in my view, a scriptural precedent that was presented. But what we're pointing out here is this approach in the pursuit of unity to interact with others along these lines. Not everything that doesn't dot its I and cross its T the way that we would wish to see it done is therefore completely out of bounds and should be looked askance at and we should have an immediate opinion on and register our disagreement about, etc., the model we're working with argues that in essentials, we should work within a unity where there is agreement on these essentials. But in non-essentials, we should allow some liberty. And in everything, which is perhaps the most important point of the model, though it might seem the least specific, but nonetheless, I think it's the most important part of the model, in everything, charity. This allows, it does not squelch, when understood well, it allows for disagreement. It allows for robust discussion, but it does at the same time raise a secondary set of questions. Take, for example, the whole arrangement of the model that is built upon the idea of essentials. One has to define essential. The question becomes essential for what? Do we mean essential for salvation? Essential for church membership? Essential for employment within a seminary? Essential for participating in the communion of the bread and cup? Essential for various ministers within some geographic location to get together, pray together, talk with one another, encourage each other in Christ? Those are a range of varying categories. 
And I would argue that it is proper to work the idea of essential into varying categories. There are some things that are ubiquitously, as it were, essential to the gospel, essential to the message of salvation. But it isn't essential for just meeting with another Christian and enjoying some fellowship and seeking some further understanding between yourselves. But there might be some other things that are essential for church membership within a particular assembly that has a set of distinctives that you would otherwise be working directly against if you held certain views that might be put into the category in an overarching sense in non-essentials, perhaps some view of eschatology, and yet it might become functionally important that eventually at least the members of this particular church have unity in one mind on that particular item, and it becomes essential for that. I would argue, to keep the idea going, that there are some things that are secondary in an overarching sense, and there's a proper place for letting liberty operate within a larger context, but when it comes to who is going to be ministering the word in a particular church, or to use a similar idea, who is going to be teaching in a particular seminary, I do not think it's inappropriate to request or to ensure that there is agreement on these matters. And so you see that while the statement is very helpful, it nonetheless requires that definitions and sound thinking are built into how we work through the application of that idea. So let's take the first part of the statement. In essentials unity, we need to apply this principle by defining what we mean by essential, by thinking responsibly, even beyond that, as to what categories and life situations we're talking about at the moment in terms of essentials being required among this group of people, what fits into the category of essential. I refer you to the statement of a Huguenot pastor when we think about how we would apply this concept. He said that orthodoxy is successful heresy. Now that's a quip, and it's not to be taken straightforwardly. He's saying it with hopefully his tongue in his mouth, unless it had previously been cut out through persecution. What I'm referring to is that the Huguenots were a group of French Protestants that were severely persecuted by the Roman Catholics, and the Roman Catholics were arguing that the Huguenots do not have the right faith on essentials. But what I'm raising to your awareness at this moment as we think through these ideas, that there is a question as to who defines and who controls the category of what fits into essential. And as we've said before, that there's some sense in which the orthodox position is controlled by those who are in a position of power. Now, that is not universally true, but it certainly was true at many times in particularly European Christendom and indeed under the Roman Catholic system, they controlled and would like to still control what the definition of orthodoxy is. And if you're not a part of that, then you are to be forced 
into recanting through all sorts of outrageous measures because you're a heretic. But when we come to the other part of the statement, which reads, in non-essentials, liberty or tolerance, here again, we can think about the way in which these ideas can be misused, and I'll pass on to a quip by G.K. Chesterton. He says, tolerance is the virtue of the person without convictions. Now, that may have to sink in, but it's quite apropos for the milieu that is often present in our times, which argues for tolerance. And this idea of showing tolerance may be but the euphemism or the clever way of someone who is really arguing against having convictions of any sort of distinctness or formulation. For example, I came across this in a theological journal that was speaking about the theological position of open theism. Some of you would not be familiar with what this position is, so allow me to just characterize it for you briefly. Open theism, it's a somewhat fad, and has been for a bit now, the last uh, decade or so, within academic circles. Open theism is a view on the nature of God that rejects classic attributes like omniscience and immutability in favor of positing a God who learns, adepts, takes risks, and modifies his plans in response to human actions. In this view, God's foreknowledge is limited by the uncertainties inherent in creating humanity with truly free will, where even he does not know what free human agents will choose to do. So the idea of open theism is God created, sort of wound everything up and just let it go, and he learns and adjusts and utilizes his power in that fashion, but he doesn't know what is actually going to take place, and he certainly doesn't predestine, and he certainly doesn't have foreknowledge. And so, in a particular theological journal who was discussing open theism, I read the following, open theists are asking important questions out of a desire to honor God and be faithful to Scripture. Now, my immediate reaction is the Greek word hui, that they are. But the author goes on to say, whether we come to agree with them or not, their proposal deserves serious study and prayerful reflection, and they deserve the respect due to all members of the body of Christ. As we seek the mind of Christ on this matter, I hope that we can practice the adage adopted by the brethren, this author claims. I don't think he even looked up his source on this. It wasn't the brethren, the German brethren or the Plymouth brethren. I'm not sure who he means, but he says we should practice the adage adopted by the brethren and other groups influenced by pietism. So that would have been the German brethren. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So I'm manifesting that we still have to think responsibly all the way through because there, I do think, G.K. Chesterton's adage applies. 
Tolerance is the virtue of the person without convictions. But on the other extreme, tolerance can become a euphemism for tyranny, by which I mean that the argument of a non-essential's liberty can be forced with such energetic emotion, such vitriolic argumentation about anybody who has a conviction and takes the Word of God seriously, that what happens is that in the name of tolerance, we can become very intolerant. I know it's a simple phrase, but I believe that Vody Bauckham captured one of the great problems of the current climate in one of his books on culture, modern culture. And I read you this simple quote to once again manifest that there is a need to think about how we're defining these ideas and apply them with rational, spiritual discernment and reflection. Vody Bauckham says, the problem with the new tolerance is that it is intolerant. Nonetheless, it is not my purpose by any means to undermine the beauty of the motto because that is why we're concluding this third study on the question and idea of out of balance, or out of bounds by recommending that motto to you. I'm recommending it to you, but showing that we have to define our terms and use the motto in a robust scriptural context. And that's indeed what we'll be doing within this study. I do want to ground it in scripture. And I will do so by using one text that would be quite applicable, I would think, it is found in Jesus' address to the Pharisees, and I bring your attention to the fourth of seven woes. It starts in the 23rd verse of Matthew 23. Jesus says, woe, in other words, I am not pleased with this, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, there you have a nice motto from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself that you can carry in your spirit and remind yourself that there are gnat issues and there are camel issues and we must distinguish between the two. It really is a motto, incidentally, not simply because of the visual disparity between the size of the unclean gnat, a little bug, over against the size of the unclean camel, which is arguably the largest unclean animal that was within the Jews' experience, the camel that chewed the cud but divided not the hoof. That was a forbidden animal to eat of. It's not only the disparity between the size, but it's also in the language itself. Even in the Greek, 
it comes out somewhat. The word for gnat in the Greek is konos, and the word for camel is kamelos. But expositors have pointed out that it's even closer in the Aramaic. In the Aramaic, gnat sounds like galma, and camel, gamla. He's pointing out that if you're not careful, you can confuse your categories and you can put a gnat issue in the camel category. But likewise, you could put a camel issue in a gnat category. Jesus is saying there are weightier matters of the law. There are things that are essential and there are other things that though ultimately they should not be ignored or undone, they are not as important. So in other words, you should not draw a line in the sand and then say to the gnat issues, whosoever is on the Lord's side, let him come on to me. I mean, there's a place where we can manifest a overweening sense of our own importance and the positions that we hold. I don't wish to denigrate anyone, but I must use this example as it comes to mind whenever I get near this kind of thinking. Back several years ago, when I was working construction on a daily basis, and at the time I was aiding someone else in getting to their job, they weren't working with me, but I was driving this individual to actually another gentleman who was in the construction industry. And because I would drop this brother off at this man's house on a regular basis, sometimes I would need to wait at the home before the brother would return from work. Long story short is we both got to share with this man who ran a construction company, and the man seemed to be open to the faith. He seemed to be open to the Word of God. I had a number of good times of sharing with he and his wife and his family. But on one occasion, when the brother that I'm speaking of had spent some time with this man alone, and then I got to the man's house and I picked this brother up and he seemed a little unusually sad and dour, and he came into the car and sat down and we began to talk and he said, oh, hunting is a real issue for this man. And what he was referring to is that he was sharing to this man who wasn't even converted some conviction that this brother, friend of mine, held for whatever reasons, I'm just telling you he held it, that it was contrary to the mind of God to hunt. And what I'm trying to say is to take what is a not issue, a G-N-A-T, not issue, and to make it like, if you're on the Lord's side on this, then come on to me. I mean, brothers and sisters, I'm trying to say, without advocating compromise, I'm trying to seek to teach Jesus' own heart and principles. You have to weigh out what is weighty and worth making those kind of remarks about and what things we should realize. Maybe somebody's a little out of balance. You know, as it relates to hunting, and I'm not making a positional statement on this, but getting glee out of shooting things and killing things is not something that I think is in line with the heart and mind of God. But there's a big difference or distance between that orientation and obtaining something to eat, for example. So what I'm trying to say is on some of these issues, 
as opposed to saying in non-essentials unity, we could say, in your opinion, manifest a bit of tolerance. And it doesn't mean that we're against holding convictions. You can carry out your own conviction. Clegg Bloomberg has stated that a scandal of the contemporary church is its unparalleled fragmentation into hundreds of denominations and groupings. Many of these divisions have been over issues non-essential to salvation. Now, I've said consistently throughout these teachings, I recognize that there's no magic fix to the present state of Christendom. But as the Lord said through the prophet to Zerubbabel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. And the relevance of that is that we, at a minimum, at least, if no one else, I'm not suggesting no one else is preaching things like this or no other heart would be open to things like this, but I'm the pastor of the Upper Room Christian Assembly. And I myself am a Christian responsible for my own understanding of God's word and the compass with which I work when I relate to other believers. And I am saying that if it is true, as I believe it is, that the plethora of divisions throughout the so-called Christian family have often occurred through the misuse or the violation of the thing that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 23. In other words, we've taken gnat issues and we've demanded that if you're on the Lord's side on this gnat issue, then you can be with us, otherwise you can't. And we felt that this is champing the cause of God and we're some sort of new Moses uh, leading a new exodus out of heresy on the issue of hunting, you know, or golf or the length of your head covering, or some other thing, or whether or not you're wearing the proper socks. Do you know that there are some groups that won't fellowship with other groups because they don't wear the right socks? I mean, it's almost comical, but it isn't funny when you're in that sort of a situation. And what I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is let us be mindful of these things, lest we bring about divisions in our own homes, among ourselves and our spouse, within this church, or within possibilities of brethren from other churches. I mean, we're blessed today with two visitors from another church, and we're so happy to have them here today. And, and so these kind of concepts are worth thinking about because these things can happen. Calvin, anyone who wants to accuse Calvin of being a compromiser would have a lot of work on his or her hands, in my opinion. But Calvin says, diversity of opinion respecting non-essential points ought not to be a cause of discord among Christians. It is of importance, indeed, that we should agree in everything. Did you hear that? That's my position as well. It is important. We never release the value and the interest of achieving more and more specific and minute agreement on every bit of understanding. But, Calvin goes on to say, as there is no person who is not enveloped with some cloud of ignorance, either we must allow of no church at all, 
or we must forgive mistakes in those things of which persons may be ignorant without violating the essence of religion or incurring the loss of salvation. In other words, dear brothers and sisters, if you apply your nat calculus too strongly, you would wind up with no church at all. And that's not an exaggeration. Sadly, there are manifest places and situations where that very thing is all but occurring, where churches are dying on the vine through a lack of any fruit in terms of members being a part of it because they have all these issues that they make into the category of something essential and they don't even have an interest in seeking unity with anything beyond their particular distinctives. Calvin goes on to say, Here, I would not be understood to plead for any errors, even the smallest, or to recommend their being encouraged by connivance or flattery. In other words, these studies and looking for unity and applying the principle that in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. It is not pleading for the objective, as it were, of a policy or a philosophy. Let's allow errors, not even the smallest. We're a church that wants to study the word and think, think, think things through as specifically and carefully and in a defined manner as precisely as possible. But that does not mean that we cannot, while doing that, apply this principle as obviously Jesus himself did. Do you think there was anything that Jesus was not certain of when he was ministering in the environs of Galilee and Judea? Well, I knew, I know he grew in wisdom and stature, so he had to think things through and pray about them. But I'm saying there's a lot of things that Jesus was well aware of, but he didn't press those issues all the time. Part of the glory of Jesus' ministry is what is not written about his dialogues, because he didn't say everything he could have. To finish Calvin's quote, I give you the last sentence. He says, But I maintain that we ought not, on account of every trivial difference of sentiment, to abandon the church. And I could add to abandon Christian fellowship. Well, I want to give you in this section one last statement from the evangelical Anglican preacher John Stott. And I recommend you write this down or you re-listen to this statement. I find it beautiful in its simplicity, and yet it strikes all the right notes in my view. And it goes as follows. In essentials, then, faith is primary. Faith is his word for doctrine. In essentials, then, doctrine, the right ideas, that is primary. And we may not appeal to love as an excuse to deny essential doctrines. Because in essentials, the right ideas are critical. So someone doesn't happen to believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You can't appeal to, well, 
we're not going to take a stand on that. We're just going to allow that person to fellowship and share his ideas and even give his presentation from the pulpit because we want to love everyone. No, this is an essential doctrine. I would say the biblical definition of marriage and the biblical definition of sexuality is an essential biblical teaching. And so in those, though, yes, according to the statement that we're working from, the ancient motto and adage, yes, certainly, I'm not saying that we shouldn't exercise our positions with love. I'm not saying that. I mean, you're in sin if you're not. But what I'm saying is in terms of working this through, and that's why we're teaching so we can have all of this equipment and then look for unity. I'm saying or repeating John R. Stott, and I will say it again, as I continue with his quotation, in essentials then, doctrine, the right ideas, the words, they are primary. And we may not appeal to love as an, ex as an excuse to deny essential doctrines. In non-essentials, however, love is primary. And we may not appeal to zeal for the doctrine or zeal for the faith or zeal for the once for all delivered over to the saints concept as an excuse for failures in love. I believe that that is accurate, what Mr. Stott says. I think it fits in with what Jesus says. The weightier matters of the law that they were neglecting were matters of how you deal with another person and justice and mercy and love. And he's saying that in these non-essentials, you should put in the primary place how you're going about the discussion and how you're interacting with the other. Because again, sometimes, maybe not all the time, it has a lot to do with your own studiousness and studying the word and rightly dividing the word of truth. But again, what I'm saying, and I do want to state this because though it can be qualified, I think it's often the case in these non-essentials, what you're dealing with actually is your opinion, which is not to reduce the idea that we can come to convictions. But how many times in things that would and are properly placed in the category of non-essentials, how many times have you adjusted your views on these matters over the years, is what I'm trying to say. You've adjusted your views, I believe, if you think about it. And so Stott finishes by saying, faith instructs our conscience. Love respects the conscience of others. Faith gives liberty Love limits its exercise. What he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, it's so beautiful. Because once again, every sentence that I've read to you is read purposefully. Because it is presenting a mixture of arguing for this approach while stating this is not to be stretched or exaggerated into either extreme where on the one hand you control the orthodoxy quotient so that everything gets put into essential and you wind up with almost like if I said what for you is a gnat issue and you would say something like well if it's in the word of God it can't be a gnat issue well I think you're disagreeing with Jesus at that point because he said these things ought to be done 
And he wouldn't be arguing for anyone to do things that aren't in the word of God. But he said, there are more weighty matters in the law. And so you have to think that through well. But on the other hand, as we have already pointed out, you can go to the extreme of arguing for tolerance as a clever way of not taking any positions. Well, what John R. Stott is saying is that the understanding of God's word, faith, your development of what you believe the Bible to teach, that's for your conscience. That's for you. You can still have a conscience about these issues. You can have the old, uh, you can have the old adage, others may, but I may not. Sort of what Jesus said to Peter. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Faith is for your conscience, dear saint. None of this education on how we can be more adept at looking for unity is an argument against your own pursuit for individual, minute understanding of God's word and developing your own views within your own conscience to as as deep and profound a level as you're able to achieve. Faith is for your conscience. Love respects the consciences of others. Faith gives you liberty. Sometimes some of the things that you believe from the word of God grant you to live a certain way, but it might offend somebody else. And so love limits its exercise. Well, I think this is an accurate way of thinking, and I think Romans 14 and verse 22 is a scriptural basis for it. It says, do you have faith? Do you have an understanding of the word? Have it to yourself and God. Clearly not an argument for never sharing your faith. Clearly not a full-throated statement that if you believe something, keep your mouth shut and just keep it to yourself personally. At the same time, there's a place for understanding how to work this within the overall context of how we relate to others. And it's in the Bible. And you should read it something like the way it sounds. If you have faith is the question. You have a belief. You have clarity on this issue. Have it before yourself and God. You're blessed if you're not condemning yourself and the thing that you allow. But also think of others so that you don't divide and offend unnecessarily. Well, we'll finish our study this afternoon by simply looking at the two categories of out of bounds or out of balance. We have a little bit of work to do in achieving that, but that's what we will finish with this afternoon. I'm going to give you three categories of things that the scripture teaches are out of bounds, that which is false, that which is formal, and that which is frozen. First of all, that which is false. Concerning demonstrably false religion. Revelation 18 and verse 4. The Apostle John hears a voice from heaven, and that voice says, ex ercomai, ex outes. Come out of her, ha leos mu, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Now, it is not always the case, grammarians will tell you, that when a prepositional prefix is then repeated in the syntax of the sentence that 
it reflects an emphasis, but nonetheless, I want it to be clear to your minds when you hear this remark that we read in Revelation 18.4, that the language is, erkomai is come, ex erkomai is come out. And then we read, ex outase, out of her. And while I'm not here to give uh, ex-catalogical arguments about how I arrive at this position, I'm simply going to state the case. We know from verse 2 of the same chapter that the her refers to Babylon, and I'm arguing that Babylon is demonstrably false religion. And as it relates to demonstrably false religion, the scriptures themselves are clear. You are to come out of her. And I think even the language itself, though it's a sad sort of reflection, indicates that in many cases, they to whom the Spirit of God is speaking was once within that system, within that which is demonstrably false religion. Because he doesn't say, don't go into her, stay away. He says, come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins, because if you do, you will experience ectone plagon outes. Why would I read that to you? Because the same construction is utilized in the Greek to set up this parallel. If you don't get out of her, then you're going to get out of God's judgments, the plagues that are designed or are intended for God's wrath against false religion. Now, there's a late 9th century B.C. example of this principle. It's found in the word of the Lord from a prophet named Yehu ben Hanani. And he is speaking to the fourth king of Judah named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat had joined the seventh king of Israel named Ahab in battle against presumably a common enemy, the Syrians, at Ramoth-Gilead. I want to remind you of what the Spirit of the Lord had to say to a Jehoshaphat, one of his people, that joined himself to false religion for some seeming common cause within the culture or within the world at large, something that supposedly would benefit Judah as well as Israel. So therefore, there was some plausible argument for doing this. But we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace in Jerusalem. You may remember that that was not the case with Ahab. Ahab died in the battle at Ramoth-Gilead, just as Micaiah ben Imlah had predicted, and Jehoshaphat was there to hear Micaiah ben Imlah make that prediction. So there's some interesting things going on here where the Spirit of the Lord is addressing Jehoshaphat and making it clear that he is not in favor of this alliance, but Jehoshaphat goes on anyway. The word of the Lord comes to pass and Ahab dies. Jehoshaphat nonetheless goes back, the Bible says, not in conviction, not in repentance, but in peace, because I suppose he could argue ends justify the means, and it all seemed to work out. Well, after all, some of the Syrians died too, 
And maybe he would even argue that, well, maybe that was sort of the providential workings of God that I joined together with old wicked Ahab and then Ahab died. You know, you can rework life is what I'm trying to say and ignore things that are specifically out of bounds and call it unity. Well, verse two tells us that Yehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, the prophet, went out to meet Jehoshaphat and said to him, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore, wrath, wrath that was not appointed to Jehoshaphat, plagues that were not appointed to my people, we are not appointed to wrath if you surely belong to the Lord Jesus. But you have to watch what you're unifying with and what you're joining. And so when we think through the application of this particular text, let's make some statements using, again, the categories of out of balance or out of bounds. First of all, Ahab, joining with Ahab, according to this text, was out of bounds. Certainly as far as quote-unquote help and love are concerned. You hearing what I'm saying? And I'm using these to help us think through. So this is not just, you know, a time in the Old Testament to think through or to just talk about the life of Ahab for random reasons. What I'm trying to emphasize here is, you know, if Jehoshaphat was interacting with Ahab to bring to him the word of the Lord and to speak to him about his false idols and all of his sins, that would have been one thing. But what we see here, because it was the word of the Lord from his prophet, your help and love for the ungodly that hate the Lord, helping and loving them in this way. We're not talking about if he fell off his horse and you helped him back up on his horse or his camel. You understand what I'm saying? Joining him and helping him in his own agenda, he is saying that is out of bounds. All right, so first of all, Ahab completely, like false religion, completely is out of bounds with respect to joining and helping it. Secondly, Jehoshaphat was out of bounds as far as his choice to help and love Ahab. Now, I'm not just repeating myself. I'm saying Ahab is completely out of bounds, categorically. His whole life is. He's false religion. He's out of bounds by definition. You come out. You don't join with that. Jehoshaphat is out of bounds with respect to his choice to unify with Ahab and false religion. But Jehoshaphat as a believer is overall out of balance, at least for the moment. In other words, he needs to repent. Now, if you're wondering why I'm saying that, number one, I could say that I'm saying that through sensible reflection on the life of Jehoshaphat. Because David was out of bounds when he sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. But overall, he wasn't completely out of bounds as a person to be avoided Completely, he was out of balance. His life at that moment was out of balance. You understanding what I'm saying? He was not someone that you have to throw away everything that David ever wrote or, or something along those lines. The reason why I'm making that statement 
is because back in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, as you continue to read, even after the word of the Lord rebuked Jehoshaphat and says, wrath is coming upon you because you did not separate yourself from false religion. In verse 3, we read, nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. So you see, if you're, say, the prophet Yehu ben Hanani, and you're not well trained in these principles, but you do get a word of the Lord to Jehoshaphat with the sentence from God that he spoke to Jehoshaphat and said, you should have done this. This was wrong. Wrath is coming against you. He then may carry with that the feeling of complete separation. And I want nothing to do with that man. I won't think of him as a brother. I won't sit in fellowship with him. I got to check him off my list. If someone wants to go to Jehoshaphat's house for scriptural fellowship, I'm going to tell them you ought to avoid that man because he joined himself with false religion on this particular occasion. But I hope that you're seeing the distinctions that we're making here because the Bible itself says, nevertheless, in your case, Jehoshaphat, from an overarching analysis of your life, this particular choice was one that we will use the phrase you were out of balance on because you will repent and bring yourself back to a right place before God. And some people are that way. Some situations are that way. Some people make some bad choices but they're not overall completely out of bounds. To me, this story that I just presented to you from the late 9th century BC within the uh, Jewish people is very similar to something more current. Indeed, it developed in 1994, the ECT movement, more broadly known as Evangelicals and Catholics Together. I'll read you just a brief statement about that phenomenon. We certainly can't dig into it presently. We have years ago and other studies that are not recorded, but uh, here's a synopsis of those events. On March 29th, 1994, a development that some have touted as the most significant development in Protestant-Catholic relations since the dawn of Reformation or the dawn of the Reformation took place. A document entitled, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, The Christian Mission in the Third Millennium, was published with a list of more than 30 signatories, including well-known evangelicals, Pat Robertson, J.I. Packer, Os Guinness, and Bill Bright. They were joined by leading Catholics such as John Cardinal O'Connor, Bishop Carlos A. Sevilla, and Catholic scholar Peter Kreft. A team of 15 participants led by Richard John Newhouse and Charles Colson drafted the 25-page document. Newhouse is a former Lutheran minister who converted to Catholicism in 1990 and has since been ordained to the priesthood like Colson, Chuck Colson. He is an influential author and speaker. And on goes the synopsis. What I'm wanting to just kind of compare with what we just looked at and bring it into this overall conversation is here is a 
relatively live example. I know it goes back to 1994 in its inception, and it was quite effervescing at the time, but I don't think it has gone off the scene. And what I'm saying to you is that, in my view, it was a miscalculation on in the likes of J.I. Packer and Os Guinness and even Chuck Colson to join themselves with Roman Catholics. Now, I'm not here to discuss that whole issue at length, but what I'm trying to say is I would apply the word of the Lord from Yehu ben Hanani and say you are helping those that as a system is opposed to God, and that's undeniable, would be my argument. And for example, R.C. Sproul, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, held the same position on this matter as do I. And what I'm trying to state, however, is that doesn't mean that I think J.I. Packer, for example, or Chuck Colson, as a person, is are completely out of bounds because there are some good things that they have done. I hope that's somewhat useful, especially if you reflect on that on your own time. Here's another example that might be more easy for you to think out. Kenneth Copeland is out of bounds, period. Now, one should not even say that without love and in an, in an irresponsible manner. I haven't the time presently to work through the substantiation for why I would say Kenneth Copeland is out of bounds, period. But I'll give you just a few remarks, quotations of his on the issue of Jesus Christ and the nature of his death, and the ideas that Copeland teaches very vociferously, the idea that is sometimes known as Jesus died spiritually. And these are statements that substantiate why I say Kenneth Copeland is out of bounds, period. For example, he says, and I quote, See, you have to realize that Jesus died. You have to realize that he went into the pit of hell as a mortal man made sin. But he didn't stay there, thank God. He was reborn in the pit of hell and resurrected. In another statement along the same lines, he says, The righteousness of God was made to be sin. He, that is Jesus, accepted the sin nature of Satan in his own spirit, and at the moment that he did, that's when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So according to Kenneth Copeland, this brilliant theologian, he is saying that when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, he took on the spirit of Satan within his being. You don't know what happened at the cross, Copeland goes on to say. Why do you think Moses, obeying the instruction of God, hung the serpent up on the pole instead of a lamb? That used to bug me. I said, why in the world would you want to put a snake up there, the sign of Satan? Why didn't you put a lamb on that pole? And the Lord said, claims Copeland, because it was the sign of Satan that was hanging on the cross, he said, claims Copeland that God said, I accepted in my own spirit spiritual death and the light 
was turned off. Well, I don't give you those quotations because of any desire to get into the sensational and the putrid to entertain you with. I gave them to you because while you all are acquainted with Kenneth Copeland's ministry and positions through previous studies that we've had together to warn us appropriately about much that is false within the broader charismatic community, I nonetheless, in making this statement in this serious study and making these applicable parallels, that is to say, making application of these ideas in real historical situations, whether it's Jehoshaphat or the ECT movement, when I say that Kenneth Copeland is out of bounds, period, well, I hope what I've just read to you is enough for you to understand why that must necessarily be the case. But I want to give you a comparison. To me, Edward Irving, the Scottish pastor and preacher of the early 19th century, not himself really the founder of what became known as the Catholic Apostolic Church, but nonetheless, he was a germinal figure in the configuration of the history that developed into the Catholic Apostolic Church. Edward Irving, in my view, was certainly out of balance and indeed out of bounds with respect to some of his Christology and particularly that part of his Christology within which he taught that the human nature which was taken on by the eternal Logos in his incarnation was necessarily a post-Lapsarian human flesh. In other words, it was a fallen human nature. Now, the reason why I bring Edward Irving in, juxtaposed to what I just stated about Kenneth Copeland, is hopefully to demonstrate the responsible fashion in which we need to look for unity while applying these principles and the principle of in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And I am saying to you that Copeland is a blatant heretic on essentials and there can be no unity with him whatsoever. He is out of bounds in the way that Ahab was out of bounds in the way that Mystery Babylon and demonstrably false, persistently false religion is out of bounds by using the person of Edward Irving and because of the fact that he himself was out of bounds in this way that, say, Jehoshaphat was at the moment of joining Ahab, here, Edward Irving, in promoting a certain Christological opinion, view, I would say his position was out of bounds. But he himself, as a ministry and as a person, in my view, is not out of bounds categorically. And therefore, he was out of balance using the ideas, I'm not contradicting myself. I hope you can hear the nuance. I'm saying in an overarching sense, he was out of balance in his overall life when he tended toward that false Christological position. But part of the reason why I say that is listen to the distinction between what I read to you from Kenneth Copeland and how he characterizes Christ in the reckless, blasphemous, satanic manner in which he does that with this statement from Edward Irving himself expressing the issue that he's grappling with, 
He says, the point at issue is simply this, whether Christ's flesh, his human body, had the grace of sinlessness. Now I'm going to parenthetically state, Irving never varied from saying Christ was perfectly sinless, as was his flesh. His argument or theological reflection was on how was that sinlessness achieved? So to continue with Irving's statement, the point at issue is simply this, whether Christ's flesh had the grace of sinlessness and incorruption from its proper nature. In other words, it was always that way at the point of incarnation from its native, if you will, ontological self-empowerment, or, Irving says, from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I say the latter, Irving states. I assert that in its proper nature, it was as the flesh of his mother, in other words, fallen, or by virtue of the Holy Spirit, quickening and inhabiting, it was preserved incorruptible. So his argument is that Christ necessarily had to take on in his flesh a fallen human flesh is the way I would say what Irving is clumsily working with. He's failing to realize that you can't have a fallen human nature limited to simply the body. But I'm not here to analyze Irving's position on this matter. What I will tell you is I have studied it and I believe that position itself is out of bounds. It's heretical. It's not just a certain curious opinion. It, it is, it is as many theologians felt that it was currently, but some still grapple with these ideas, you might imagine. Um, well, he was actually put out of the presbytery in 1833 because of this particular issue and he was charged with heresy. But, and this is a man who's not alive at the moment. So, like I said in last Sunday's teaching, there's a certain easiness with which we can grapple with these issues. We don't, Edward Irving isn't going to walk through the door and, and, and possibly intersect with your Christian life. And you're going to have to think through, what do I do with this man that either once had this view or still is lacking clarity? What do I do about all of this? Do I view him as a Kenneth Copeland? I think these things are important because these are the real world reflexes, you know, the real world situations that we, that we react to. And I feel if we learn these principles and we become more self-conscious, we can be discerning. No, wait a minute. Am I, am I just reacting to this person and, and putting them in this place of you're out of bounds completely? Or should I realize something more nuanced? And you have to think through these different issues. Well, what exactly is the doctrinal thing we're debating? And maybe they are out of bounds on that particular doctrinal issue. But sometimes, like with Jehoshaphat, who was really wrong in what he did, I'm just recommending, brothers and sisters, the Bible's own argument. I'm saying sometimes there are men or women, boys or girls, who are out of bounds on a serious matter. But overall, their whole ministry and person and place, they're not completely out of bounds. And there's something wrong with a fundamental, emotionally driven, dismissive, divisive attitude that we would bring to that particular 
entity. Do you hear what I'm saying? In other words, for you to run as if hell is coming after you when Kenneth Copeland is staring at you with his demonically infused eyes is one thing. For you to know this little tidbit about Edward Irving. When I say tidbit, I don't mean to minimize it. What I'm saying, let me state it differently. For you to know this particular piece of Edward Irving's life, I say tidbit because for many people, they don't even bother to study the scope of his life. They would hear one little thing out of him and they're so certain and so sure and so quick to judge and they push him out and that is indicative of how they operate on a daily basis is why I'm bringing these things to your attention. To me, Edward Irving is more like Jehoshaphat as a believer. Overall, Edward Irving, like many of us, was out of balance. And certainly, as a word minister, you are held to a high standard, and you should be. I don't disagree with the presbytery putting him out of the ministry as such. I don't disagree with that. But, you know, we get into a much bigger discussion here. If we had time, I would tell you about another situation within Plymouth Brethrenism, which I will some point might allude to, where a massive division occurred over a similar sort of thought pattern like with Irving's and may have even been somewhat influenced by Irving's thoughts, actually, historically. And the man, Benjamin Newton, ultimately repented of his previous position and said I was wrong. And yet I know, and I didn't mean to drift into this, but I know within Plymouth Brethren circles, you know, open and closed brethren, I could get into all of this. I think I will be stating something about this in a subsequent study. It depends on how far we want to continue to discuss these matters. At some point, obviously, you put a period for the time being and go on to other subjects. But what I'm just trying to state is even to this day, there is high sensitivity about who was right and who was wrong in that whole issue. And it's still very, very divisive. And what I would argue is the way in which the matter was handled was very clumsy and was not Christ-like in its sophistication or it, it wasn't very mature. And we need to sometimes go back and look at the way we've handled things and say, that was clumsy. It was, it was not mature. It was ill-informed. I was like, you know, here's an issue. Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come on to me. And then the Lord taps you on the back and says, you're dividing over a gnat while you swallow a camel. Knock, knock, knock. Is anybody home? You're dividing over a gnat while you swallow a camel. And I don't know what you think you're achieving by dividing things more and more and more. And you claim the only verse you know is Amos 3.3. How can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, I think you figured that out in your marriage, didn't you? I mean, you have to define what do you mean by, by agree on every last little thing all the time, on every little knot. Maybe that is why you're divorced, or nearly so, or divorced while living together. You understand what I'm trying to state? As it relates to Edward Irving, in my view, like with Jehoshaphat, he had a number of good things. He was a profound man of prayer and humility. He had a servant's heart. He was one of the early proponents of premillennialism. Now, for some, that's like another check against him. For me, it's a check 
in the right direction of eschatological thought. So he was one of the early minds that restored the ancient belief in a premillennial, well, first of all, return of Jesus. And obviously the thought of a premillennial return is assuming that there is a millennium. And also, as Dalimore's very sympathetic volume on Edward Irving captures in its title, Edward Irving was the forerunner of the charismatic movement. Now, Dalimore doesn't himself embrace the charismatic movement or did not himself embrace the charismatic movement, and I'm not here digressing into all of that, but what I'm stating to all of us is that while certainly abuses have manifested themselves in the charismatic community, like in every other religious community, by the way. Have you ever heard of hyper-Calvinism? That's an extreme version of Calvinism to be avoided as, let's say, the true Calvinists do. And what I'm stating is, yes, it is true that Irving made some space, if you will, and taught and, and grappled with Ideas surrounding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you this for those who love thinking in these directions, you know, who are exposed to this sort of thought. Here's an interesting anecdote for you. Edward Irving had a certain view of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of Christ, which I argue is very accurate. And it kind of swept him up, actually, into this view about the Holy Spirit purifying Jesus' flesh. In other words, he argued that when you see Jesus calm the storm and perform miracles, it's not to be located just simply in his divine nature as if that was done by virtue of the fact he's God. It is to be understood as the work of the Spirit through him that he yielded to as any believer can. And that's a beautiful angle of awareness to appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. Now, I do think, as he's working through these ideas in a very fresh way in his time, he didn't have the benefit of, of years and years of subsequent reflection, that he went off to an extreme. But he was not a Kenneth Copeland ranter and coarse, belligerent personality. He was a very dear, humble man. Now, can deceivers be dear and humble? Yes. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. Don't forget, they can. So that's important too. But it's also possible that a man who is otherwise very dear and sincere and loves Jesus gets off into some tangent. That's not okay. We need to stop it. We need to go to him as Paul did to Peter and say, Brother Edward, you are not speaking according to the truth of the gospel. One biography of Edward Irving's is entitled Blinded Eagle. Blinded Eagle. For me, it captures a feeling about Irving that I share. What a precious, precious soul. Oh, you know, I'm not here to talk about Edward Irving at length, but, uh, oh, I didn't finish. That, that the view that Edward Irving held on the operation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life was held by none other than John Owen. Claimed to this day to be certainly among the most theologically gifted minds in the English-speaking world. John Owen. Well, I suppose in the interest of not overwhelming our baskets and our ability to process what we're presenting to you that I think we'll go ahead and pick this up again next Sunday and continue with these three categories of out of bounds. We've done faults. 
religion, and we'll continue to think along these same lines in the other two categories, and then look at some ideas of that which is out of balance, and then we'll be able to conclude this subsection of our studies. So I think for the time being, I'll put a period there, and we'll pick it up again next time, Lord willing. So may the Lord bless the word to your hearts for today.